The nomination of Donald Trump as the Republican candidate for president in 2016 caused a rift in the GOP, and it caused the rise of a small group of lifelong conservatives who became known as Never Trumpers. Trump's election as president and the years that followed saw more and more high-profile defections. Former GOP party chairs, longtime conservative columnists, and talk show hosts. Over the four years of the Trump administration, scores of high-profile Republicans reached their breaking points and announced that they would be removing their support from the party they'd voted for for years. Even Republicans who had been members of the Trump administration spoke out and joined the Never Trump movement. So many defections from a party, so many high-profile defections, would almost certainly spell the end of a political party. But as with so many other issues that we've addressed with relation to President Trump, the normal laws of political physics don't seem to apply. For every defection from Trump's GOP, the president seemingly pulled a new voter from his hat. And while he lost the popular vote and the Electoral College, the GOP of Donald Trump still received the second highest number of votes ever received by a presidential candidate. So now, if the GOP of Donald Trump can attract 74 million voters, do they even need the Never Trumpers to come home? And if there's no home for the Never Trumpers in the GOP of Donald Trump, will they remain welcome in a Democrat party increasingly demanding perfection? I'm Clay Aiken. This week, Politicon welcomes the dean of the Never Trumper movement, the one, the only, Bill Kristol. Founder and editor of the former Weekly Standard, editor of The Bulwark, and a staff member of Republican administrations all the way back to Ronald Reagan. I'll ask him, is it time for moderates to try and retake the Republican Party? Did Joe Biden save our democracy? And what are his hopes for he and the Republicans during a Biden administration? And of course, how the heck are we going to get along? How have you been? How have you been holding up in the whole pandemic? I'm thing? okay, thanks. How about you? I am, you know, muscling through. We started doing this podcast two weeks before the shutdown, and I had been planning to fly out every week to LA, and we were doing this live with the panel, and oh. and we got to LA, and we're preparing and sitting around ready to do the the second taping, and found out about everything being shut down, and. Oh. When we, when we, when that happened, we all thought, well, you know, I guess we'll just do this online for the next week or two yeah, yeah, <laughs> and then yeah. I'll see you. And then I'll see you in a month. No, I mean, it's what we're on. I think our 41st episode now. And I mean, it's just, That's it's amazing. a new, it's a whole new world, a whole new show. And where are, are you? Where are you down in North Carolina or no? Yeah, I'm in Raleigh. Um, so it's just as cold here as it is there. And it, how are things it, down there? Okay. In terms of COVID? Yeah, yeah. So far, I mean, our governor did just, uh, implement a new, um, pseudo modification of a shutdown. I guess there's going to be a nightly curfew between 10 PM and 5 AM, yeah. uh, over the weekend to prevent people from drinking and carousing or whatever too late. But I I kind of feel like Cooper, Governor Cooper here in North Carolina has done a pretty good job of walking a fine line between being way too draconian that some states right. have done and then way too lax, which too many have done. And I feel like we've done okay. It's not been too, you know, nobody's doing great, right? But as far right. as caseloads go, and you're in Virginia, yeah? Yeah, Northern Virginia, just outside DC. Yeah, is it? But I know that area. There? Our daughter, one of our daughters, went to Duke, and so we used to go down oh, there yeah. all the time. And then I taught at Davidson actually last the year ago, 
last, okay. uh, last fall, I flew down one day a week to Charlotte, which is uh, okay. different part I went to college in Charlotte. Not, I, wasn't right? smart enough. Oh, well. I wasn't smart enough to go to Davidson, but I went to college in Charlotte. Yeah, well, so. <laughs> it's kind of close. Davidson, that's good to hear. Yeah. And, and, and you're feeling, I'm assuming, uh, some, some relief after, uh, November 3rd and and today is what what do they call today last uh resort day safe harbor safe harbor safe harbor day right so so harbor it's official now harbor, you know? <laughs> okay so it's pretty much official now and then the supreme court just before we came on here was uh yeah. did their ruling uh, essentially one senate saying you know this Pennsylvania case screw off yeah. not happening is that that doesn't surprise you I mean does it surprise you at all that it was seemingly unanimous no dissents from the court? Yeah, no, I mean, no, the legal cases had gotten so ridiculous. The courts came through, I thought it was encouraging that the courts behaved like real courts and didn't seem to matter who had appointed the judges. That was a good sign for, for the country, I thought. Yeah, I mean, it's happened, I mean, pretty universally that even, I know they don't like being called Trump judges, Obama judges, etc., but even judges who Trump, President Trump had appointed sided against him in these cases are they sort of uh, have have people screamed too much that that courts are too partisan um they or are they the last body of government that has seemed to work without a partisan uh, lane in this situation yeah i think if you had to sort of rate the different institutions courts would be pretty high up there and sort of seeming to maintain a kind of allegiance to the rule of law and not simply to partisanship or to personalities the military i think with one or two exceptions obviously uh, they were stressed but uh, a lot of the civil servants actually have come through pretty well so it's not entirely a discouraging picture of the last four years though other institutions didn't do as well oh wait okay so you you haven't been that discouraged then i mean well, I, I, I know you're not in love with the with the president and the administration necessarily but but you don't feel do you feel that this is a four-year anomaly that we will be able to bounce back from, or do you feel like there's going to be lasting damage? I mean, I think that's the big question. I'm worried. I don't think it's just an anomaly, or, or if it's an anomaly, it's an anomaly that's going to have after effects and consequences that have to be dealt with also, because it's not just ending. It's not just a parenthesis, and now we move on. Obviously, look at the Republican Party, one of our two major parties. It's awfully Trumpy, awfully friendly to conspiracies, awfully open to demagoguery and stuff. Look at Congress, how broken that is. So I, I think the good news is we have, you know, we're, we're a very mature constitutional democracy and we have long developed institutions with habits and norms and, you know, the legal system being one of them. And I think the civil service and the military uh, being another and, and the media which has done pretty well on the whole, and, uh, and and the diversity of the country is good, but the size, the federalism, the decentralization, which makes it harder to stampede everyone at once. But but I, on the other hand, I'd say the, the damage that Trump has done to our political discourse and the damage he's done to the Republican Party is really, or that the party's done to itself, maybe, is, is really great. And that, you, I don't think that can be fixed overnight. Yeah, where do you go now, Bill? <laughs> I mean, I do you, do you feel do you feel question. sort of homeless? Yeah, a little bit in a good way. I mean, I feel like I'm independent, and that's fine. And uh, maybe uh, there's something to be said for being able to say when when you think one party is doing the right thing and the other's doing the right thing. I mean, I voted Democratic in the last couple of elections because I did think the Republican Party should be held accountable for accommodating and uh, Trump and acquiescing in so much of what he was doing, enabling him. Really, I mean. 
And, and in that respect, the election was disappointing. I don't think other voters agreed with me that sort of Republicans should be punished, as it were, for for uh, enabling Trump. They were scared for whatever reasons of the Democrats, and and so Republicans did pretty well. Which means that the lesson that you shouldn't go along with this kind of demagoguery didn't really get passed on to, to Republican senators and congressmen. But I mean, so your your site, the Bulwark, is the if I'm I'm going to get it wrong, and I can't get my computer to work fast enough to catch it. But the the brand essentially is without tribalism. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong there, but no, you, the, the Bulwark essentially gives political opinion without the 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 tribalism that's kind of become so endemic within our whole system. Why is, I mean, you you and David Frum and Michael Steele, there are certainly some really high-profile people who have left um, the Trump-ism of the Republican Party while maintaining your conservative values. Um, but, you know, it it's fascinating to me, especially as, I, as I've talked to former Republicans, I'm air-quoting here, that some of them left the Republican Party and then sort of abandoned their Republican values also. And, I mean, I guess you're really a part of a minority of people who both defected, if that's a word, from what Trump was doing to the Republican Party you were used to, but still maintained your conservative beliefs why is it that it's hard for people to do that? I'm not going to name names here, but I can think of several people who were former Republicans but now dislike Donald Trump so much that they are pro-choice and they are anti-gun and they I mean <laughs> and I'm like how do you how do you go well, how do I we mean, get so tribal? Yeah, no, I generally how we got so tribal is a huge question and the hyperpartisanship and hyperpolarization really have done a lot of damage and that was true before Trump and Trump uh, is in a way a product of that, or he exploited that. I hope one effect maybe is that we've now seen where that can lead, and and we'll we'll, we'll try to fix aspects of the system that contribute to that, or make that make the polarization easier. I mean, to be fair, I have so I have I think there's a diversity of views among never Trump types. Um, some, as you say, have just kind of decided that Trump exposed something rotten about conservatism and the Republican Party, and there were things there that they didn't want to. Th- didn't want to have seen beforehand and didn't want to have you know, noticed. And, and I, I respect that. And I partly agree with that, incidentally, a little bit. I mean, I, the, the, you'd have to be idiotic in a way to have gone through these four years and never rethought anything, right? It's like, well, this was a weird thing that happened, like a meteor, but I'm not going to rethink any of my previous views. That would be a little silly. So obviously, I've thought a lot about you know people I supported who now behave badly and policies I've supported that turned out to have you know, side effects I wasn't fully, you know, aware of on some issues like policing. I've changed my mind to some degree, just I think based on the evidence or at least on what I see to be the evidence. So uh, some rethinking is fine. I don't, I don't think we should criticize people for that. Other people have been much more limited and have said Trump was an aberration. I'm against Trump, but I'm sticking with the party. I'm sticking with conservatism. I think I'm sort of in between I, I, I think there's a lot that was good about American conservatism. I, I have no regrets of you know supporting Reagan, but coming to Washington to serve in the Reagan administration and you know, working in the George H.W. Bush White House and, and so forth. But I've also rethought some things of the last 20, 30 years. As I say, you'd have to be kind of foolish not to. And I do feel like going forward, 
it may be that both conservatism and liberalism were kind of exhausted. I mean, the, the, the policies that people like me fought about in the 90s or the 2000s, I don't know, those don't seem to be maybe the real divides now. And there's a lot. And the one thing I would say is we all, we all fought within a certain context. We debated, you ran for Congress. I mean, it was, we took certain things for granted. I think the main thing we took for granted was we were in a system, a liberal democratic system where liberties were to be protected and the people were to vote and, and there was going to be this basic level of decency and civility. Uh, that needs to be protected now, it turns out. That was more precarious than we thought. So I, I think the task going ahead in part is to kind of defend the system of liberal democracy more than to maybe argue for you know, a 37% versus a 41% top marginal tax rate or something. Right. But is there not, is that not part of like systemically the problem that I agree with what you said that we need to defend that democracy itself, but there's a whole chunk of the country that feels like, like we don't even think we have the same problems, right? I mean, it's not, it's not as simple as arguing about tax policy or even foreign policy, or it's, it's about arguing about what is what about America do people see as broken? And s- people on the left certainly have a different view of what they feel is broken than what people who are following Trump on the right feel is the problem. If we don't even think we have the same problem, what the are we going to do? No, that's a good way of putting, putting it. I guess one thing we can do is say, well, things are always somewhat broken and things need to be fixed. But I mean, let's keep things in perspective. Or, or, you know, I'd say this to my friends on the left and the right. I mean, the one thing that struck me so much about the rhetoric of the right in the last three, four years is, you know, they talk about the country and it's just horrible. And it's, you know, if Trump loses, we're going to have, I don't know, the worst government ever or something under Joe Biden, you know. I mean, yes. uh, but on the socialism. Left, yeah, socialism, and on the left, a little, little bit comparable among some people on the left in terms of, oh, yeah. you know, nothing is worse than, than corporate America and so forth. And you do want to step back and say, well, look, let's, you know, be serious about this. There are problems with globalization, problems with all kinds of things, things that we've not dealt with as well as we should have. Some parts of the country have suffered more than others yeah, economically and so forth. It's culturally unnerving to people to have all these big changes within 10, 20, 20 30 years on everything from, you know, ethnicity of the, po- the population to, I guess, sex and gender and all these things. But but let's, again, step back and calm down a little, really. And this is one thing I hope Biden can do for us all. Right. And say, can't we live with this? Or maybe, you know, we can tweak this a little bit, but it's not, we're not going to stop international trade and we shouldn't and you know it would be disastrous if we did and we're not going to stop progress in civil liberties and uh, uh, in terms of women's rights or gay rights or whatever and no one wants to not most most people don't want to so let's talk about let's you know be more serious about kind of the the new america that we could be building and maybe that sounds a little mushy and uh, obviously that's not the way politics these days but 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 i I kind of think that was always implicit in the past, even when we had pretty tough debates. And what's most depressing about the current moment is that everyone's forgotten that there's any common ground at all. And it's just this kind of ferocious uh, denunciation of each other. I mean, I don't, I absolutely agree with you on that. I scream it every week on this podcast, but I'm going to give you shit for a second. So 
hold sure. on because <laughs> and I, I don't I don't think Twitter is the place that people should be held accountable for all the time. Clearly, the president of the United States uses it irresponsibly. But you did tweet earlier today. You tweeted an article from the Atlantic. Um, right. And the quote that you pulled was, alarmism is essential when conditions make it appropriate. Um, in the context of that article, which I think was talking about preparing ourselves for the worst if Donald Trump decides to stay in office, to stage a coup in order to stay in office, you know. But I, the the sentence itself, alarmism is essential when conditions make it appropriate, stuck with me because I personally wonder if perhaps both sides, both the right and my left, friends on the left, use alarmism so much that we don't even pay. Have, have we cried wolf too much? I guess is what I'm, I'm saying. I say to my Democratic friends all the time, all the times that people on the left screamed that John McCain was going to be, John McCain and Sarah Palin were going to ruin America because of their horrible ideas, or Mitt Romney was going to stuff women into binders and <laughs> send them back to the kitchen barefoot. Like, if, at some point, if you cry wolf so much, if you are alarmist so much, then when the wolf shows up, nobody listens, right? And my fellow Democrats cried wolf a lot, and then when he did show up, Folks weren't willing to listen. Is that is that a problem for both parties? I mean, are we being alarmist more than we need to be? I think we have been, you know, and that's some of that's just political rhetoric is overheated. And as you say, people cry wolf a lot. Uh, on the other hand, you do want to cry wolf when there is a wolf. And you don't want to. And I think what that piece in the Atlantic, I know what that piece in the Atlantic was reacting against was people saying, well, look how shambolic, you know, Trump's uh, legal attempts are, and he's, you know, he's screaming and yelling, and people are doing extremely irresponsible things, showing up outside elected officials' houses with you know, and mobs and guns and so forth. But so far, nothing terrible really has happened, so calm down. And I'm sort of on the side of the writer of that piece, which is, you know, it's pretty bad what's happening. I mean, the degree of just sort of incitement to violence and crazy rhetoric and 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 what Trump is trying to do the president of the United States not a fringe figure not one senator or one crackpot congressman is trying to get state legislators to overturn the decision of the voters and and doing it pretty shamelessly and you know calling them to the white house and calling them on the phone and and now explicitly uh, encouraging them to do that and retweeting totally ludicrous conspiracy theories about the voting machines and stuff and that does do real damage so i am alarmist a little bit about that but i take your point i mean i i, I in that context i thought the anti-alarmism was getting it was a little too complacent but I agree in general, a much less heated political rhetoric, certainly about normal policy disputes, you know, um, is would be much healthier for the country. And that, again, is a big, one of the big questions, and I don't know, you've thought about this a lot. I'd be curious to know what you think. I mean, how much does it change after January 20th? I've gone back and forth on this in my own mind. I mean, is it, it, do we still have the kind of Trumps out there still doing everything he's doing? <laughs> Republican Party's still terrified of him, and he's endorsing people in primaries, or does it change a lot three, six, nine months after he's out of the Oval Office and he's just a, an ex-president and Mar-a-Lago, you know, popping off? 
Well, listen, if I had the answer to that, Bill, I'd be doing more than a podcast. So I don't know no. that I know. Yeah, but yeah, but everyone aspires to a podcast. That's the highest. <laughs> but well, we, Matt and Twitter are the but, highest forms of, of, of media in our day and age. Right. But we do, we do, but everybody wants to know the answer to that question. And, right. and there certainly are, you know, I, I think about it on <laughs> about the way I handle when a child that I taught or my own child has a temper tantrum. And sometimes to me, the solution is to ignore um, and let them cry it out. Uh, I don't know that that's the solution here. I certainly don't ever plan to run for president. That's, and I hope Joe Biden has the, <laughs> has the ability to know how to turn the temperature down. But right. doesn't it really depend in, in large part on how he responds and how do you hope he does? Are you in the camp that, that wants the schadenfreude of seeing Donald Trump prosecuted for some of the things that he has done wrong, either federally or state? Or do you hope that the president-elect, the future president, ignores that, leaves it alone, does not, maybe not, doesn't go as far as Gerald Ford did, but, but moves on? What do you think heals the country? And you tell me, Bill. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was that was effective. Well, this is where your experience as a podcast host is coming in useful. <laughs> and throw the question back. So I think so. I think there's a Trump question and a Biden question. Trump will obviously be Trump, and we'll have to. And then I think Biden's made clear he's going to be president. He's going to be, I think, responsible and dignified. He's not going to order his attorney general to investigate anything if stuff stuff comes up that's clearly illegal. It's a question whether you can just turn turn a blind eye and obviously what happens at the state level in New York and, and elsewhere is, is sort of out of Biden's control. But I, I think Biden will try to uh, turn the temperature down, move on, be forward looking. He's got a ton of things to deal with, God knows. And I, I think the best thing he can do is be a, a, a healthy contrast to Trump. For me, though, the in between Biden and Trump is Congress and, and other elected officials. And in particular, the, the Democratic Party presumably will just assume for now is busy supporting Biden or or arguing with Biden that he's not going far enough or whatever, but the Republican Party remains for me a huge question. I mean, it's half the country. It's half the elected officials in the country. It, it's a slight majority, it looks like, in the Senate, depending on what happens in Georgia. Well, at least 50, though. And almost a majority, a slight minority in the House. Uh, what are they, how do they sound? And for me, that's a that's hard to tell, but I think it's it's somewhat not in Biden's control. I mean, if the Republicans just decide to oppose everything Biden does, oppose most of his cabinet nominees, say that every time he proposes anything, it's socialism. It's going to be hard for Biden to just, he, he can personally still be, I think, uh, you know, affable and sort of dignified and not descend into the gutter, but it's going to be hard to have a kind of decent two-party politics. If the Republicans gradually liberate themselves from that kind of spirit of Trump and of uh, denouncing him personally and everyone in his cabinet personally and and so forth and and uh decide he's a legitimate president and they're going to agree with this and disagree with that that would be healthy i'm i'm worried about the republican party for me that's the biggest question mark if trump will be trump biden will be biden uh do how many republicans behave in a somewhat responsible uh, and constructive way will that not depend on how effectively Donald Trump can position himself as a kingmaker. I mean, it, it seems like that's sort of what he's trying to do. Is yeah, and, and but you know they, that's sort of a two way street, right? I mean, he's a kingmaker. If people let him uh, be a kingmaker to some degree, I mean, he obviously has his own influence and power. But 
the degree to which, again, it, for me, what worries me the most is that a lot of Republicans have decided they can kind of get the best of both worlds, keep a little distance from Trump so they don't sound totally crazy, but, you know, get the benefits of all the people whom Trump does speak to and, and, and works up. And they are kind of playing with fire. So you use the analogy of the you know, the toddler and the uh, you know, temper tantrum, fair enough. The other one is sort of the toddler with, you know, a box of matches nearby. And, and Trump really is, I think, Trump has put a lot of matches around in, and tried to spill some gasoline in different places. Right. And I read, you know, I, you just, it's not, leave aside Trump's story for you, but you read other people's and you read what's actually happening in real, you know, the Arizona Republican Party is a thing. It's a real party. And it's, you know, if you read its Twitter feed, it's basically calling for the civil war and insurrection. And then you look at Michigan and they're massing outside the Secretary of State's house, armed people. So far, again, nothing terrible has happened. And maybe it all kind of dissipates once Biden gets sworn in. Let's hope so. But I wish there were more responsible conservative and Republican voices telling people, uh, hey, I mean, there are some, Raffensperger in Georgia and others, I mean, who've been excellent, but so few of them, you know, I mean, saying, telling people, look, we follow the law and let's be peaceful. And, and some of these people have said, I'm still voting Republican. And I voted for Trump, but we can't, we can't conduct our politics this way. Otherwise, we really are going to be in trouble because fine, we'll make it through 2020, but then the next time it'll be a closer election or there'll be, there will be violence somewhere. And then we really ought to slippery slope to, to a bad place. Right. But I mean, is it there, is it not time perhaps to just rake it, pile it, burn it and start over when it comes to, I mean, <laughs> that sounds a little silly, but I, I think about the fact that throughout the past two years, especially as we've, or, or especially the year of, of the campaign, as we've seen more and more high profile conservatives you 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 and a few others came out very early on and said this is not the conservatism that i have stood for this is not the republican party that i've supported but mm -hmm. slowly over the past year we've seen even more who we thought may never general mattis came out and and said uh that he was not voting for donald trump admiral mcraven came out and said i mean continually seeing Republicans, high-profile Republicans, say, I am leaving. One would look at the number of defections from the Republican Party under Donald Trump and think there is no way that Democrats can win the Democrat, the Democrat base. Joe Biden can win them. Plus, Joe Biden's going to win Bill Kristol. Joe Biden's going to win David Frum. Joe Biden's going to win uh, Admiral McRaven and all of these other uh, conservatives. There's no way that this won't be a rout. But for every Republican Donald Trump lost, he seemingly picked up at least eight-tenths of another one, uh, right. of another vote somewhere. And so I can't help but wonder, as the Republican Party of Ronna McDaniel looks at its playing field, if it doesn't say, well, screw it, I don't need those folks. Let them go where they want to go. As long as we, I mean, we got 76 million votes. That's the second most of any person in history. All we got to do is hold this this particular new brand of republicanism together, and we can still be incredibly viable and can still hold the Senate, can still win. I mean, is it time to stop thinking about whether or not the Republican Party can return to form and perhaps just 
give up on that brand and start a new one? <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, that's no, that's exactly what I was sort of saying before. I tried to imply before, but you said it very well, actually. And I totally agree with everything you said. And I think that is what the mood of a lot of Republicans is, the judgment of a lot of Republicans. And it's not a stupid judgment. They, they could win staying on this path. They came close this time with Trump. They came very close in the House. They picked up seats and, and seemed to have helped. We'll see what happens in the Senate. But yeah, so they don't see any great need for a major course correction. Now, from my point of view, leave aside the Republican Party and the fact that I'm nostalgic for some other party and all this, from the point of view of the country, I think this is bad. This is a party that really is embracing conspiracy theorizing and a terrible degree of divisiveness and, and you know, nativism and a kind of authoritarianism and demagoguery and, you know, uh, just disregard for the truth. I mean, the stuff that they are now signed on to in terms of the elections, and the computers and the, you know, massive fraud, fraud by a whole bunch of uh, election officials and volunteers and fellow Americans, it's really bad. So, but it's bad, but it's not failing badly. So that's, I think, a huge problem. And that's why I do sometimes, I think, you know, maybe the best thing I can do, I don't know what I, not that I matter, but, you know, people like me could, should, we should help Biden succeed if we, to the degree we can help him. We should work for decent Republicans to the degree we can help them. We should be open to other kinds of arrangements, centrist groups that maybe work with people from both parties. But I'm not. Isn't that a pipe dream, though? Is it? I mean, a third party is sort of a pipe dream at this point. I mean, right? You know, you never know, right? I mean, everybody always says we need to get rid of the parties, but no one does. No, could you have a group? Could could people though? You know, could could there be a much more sustained and purposeful effort to help moderate candidates in both parties in primaries and general elections? Could you get back to a situation where you had a bunch of senators and congressmen who and governors, and you do have more governors like that. So. Who cares who, about people getting along, though, Bill? I mean, do you, who clicks on a story where the headline is, Senators Collin and Manchin get along yeah. today? I mean, well, people well, don't people click do on that. Some progress in some forms of like, like the stimulus thing. They are sort of tr- forced to work together. We'll see what happens. Uh, because people have the sense that, geez, we kind of need to get this, you know, roll out of the virus, right? We need to help people, give them a bridge uh, in terms of their small businesses and their salary and their salaries. And so reality maybe kicks in, uh, but you're right. I think so. So one thing that's hurting us right now probably is, don't you think? I mean, social media has a sort of built in, I mean, the media's always had a certain interest, obviously, in sensationalism, but probably more so in the echo chambers now and so forth. But and a lot of other things too. So I mean, it really is a hard slog. It's not very sexy. Getting along is not very, not no, very sexy when it comes to to clickbait. No, um, and I, it shouldn't just be. And and being a centrist or a moderate shouldn't just be getting along with other people. That's kind of that's nice, but it's not an end in and of itself. But actually having sensible policies and doing something to help your fellow citizens and help people around the world that's not nothing. So. But, but on right. this show, I mean, we talk about, I mean, we, we can have disagreements about uh, actual policy, but I don't consider, I honestly don't consider myself a moderate. I just don't scream the sky is falling because the president went to play golf, <laughs> you know, and I yeah, yeah. feel like at times we might be better off if we chose to pick our battles a little bit more carefully yeah, no, I um, think and not pick them all. And there's this sort of questions of tone and and and, and uh, judgment in terms of what's important and what's not. Then there are substantive questions of policy, and the moderate solution isn't always the right solution in policy. But look, I very much agree with you. I think tr- with Trump, uh, 
I mean, maybe some of us are critics got carried away. I'm certainly not going to defend every single thing I ever said, but I do think it was important for me at least, and I think for others, you know, and then with whom I worked to really be kind of very firm that it was unex he was not a good president. He should not have been renominated by the Republican Party. For me, the big moment was not so much the general election. I supported Biden. I think he was a much better candidate, but will be a better president than Trump. I had no issue with that and no problem with that. It was crossing party lines, but it wasn't right. For me, though, the thing was I wanted to have a Republican alternative to Trump. And the failure of anyone to step up, of course that person would have lost. And Joe Walsh, to his credit, Bill Well did step up. But the failure of any major figures to see that that would be sort of the right thing to try to offer an alternative. And the failure in Congress of anyone with the tiny, you know, with very few exceptions, Mitt Romney and then a couple others occasionally, had to step up and to stand up to Trump. For me, that's very worrisome. I, I, and, I, you know... Let's I, bear I, in I, mind, though, this, this is the same Mitt Romney that Democrats said was going to put women back in the kitchen right, so back in 2012, that, they, right? They should, right. <laughs> now he's the hero. And that was very, un, and that was, you know, that was... I unfair. didn't vote for Mitt Romney. I did vote for President Obama, but I also didn't think Mitt Romney was the spawn of Satan Look, um, I think, that right, so many people claimed he was. If you can convince your fellow liberals and Democrats, and if I can right. convince them a little <laughs> bit now that I'm friendly to them, that they should be a more... Maybe they will be. One thing I've been hopeful for, you tell me your judgment. Do you, uh, don't you think, though, that a lot of liberals do kind of realize now that they went overboard, too, and that and you do need I hope to distinguish so. between the, you know, the dog that really is dangerous and the kind of the dog that you just, you know, is barking a little differently than you would like or whatever. They write I would I would hope so. But then I, you know, I I feel like I'm getting old myself and I am not. I'm I'm not as willing to pick every fight, like I said, and I look at some of the ways that President-elect Biden is already finding himself at odds, even before getting in office, with some of the further left-wing parts of uh, the Democratic base. And as President Obama himself has said, we need to get, we need to, to dispense with this idea that we demand perfection from everyone. Um, but uh, we need to dispense with this idea that we we demand perfection from everyone, and I think, I think unfortunately we do. Do you not? Do you think that President a President Biden is going to have more trouble from Republicans in the Senate uh, in his first hundred days, or from the left wing and squad part of the Democrat Party in the House? Who's going to be his biggest challenge? I think. Well, I think Republicans just because they're they control the Senate or they will be at least 50 of them in the Senate. And I think Nancy Pelosi probably can handle the left wing of the House to some degree. But look, I that's a challenge too. Biden has a tricky coalition to hold together. He needs to get some Republicans aboard on some things. He needs to hold pretty much all the Democrats on, on those same things or on other things. It's going to be a tough challenge he faces. Now, I think he's made good appointments uh, mostly so far. I think he understands the moment in, in a funny way that, you know, he's been around for a long, long time and failed in a couple of presidential campaigns. And, and who could have predicted this, that, you know, way right. after not running in 2015, 16 and everything, suddenly he's sort of the right man for the moment. Uh, let's hope he can. And I do hope the left understands that, uh, and I think some of them do, 
It's, but it's don't we always we always find the wins? I mean, that's what Donald Trump has been good at. I did Apprentice with him, and it was fascinating mm. to me. I talked to the NBC publicist uh, when we were doing a junket of some kind, and they would tell us all oh, the ratings were such and such for for this week. And he would figure out a way. She and she used to say he is the best at figuring out a way to be number one, even when he's yep. not. You know, we were number one on Sunday nights right. with, and, and the truth was, we were really just number one with males age sixteen to seventeen. But he figured out a way to make it work, and he found a win. And I think we all are really good at that. And and Al Hunt was on last week. We talked about the the expansion of the squad and how you know while Connor Lamb was lamenting how much he was being attacked by an AOC for the way he ran his campaign. The truth is, somebody like AOC could not win in Connor Lamb's. Yeah, so let's uh, see district. what happens. Like a good example. I, I know you know. I know Connor Lamb a little. I, I think highly of him. Uh, we have some members of Congress kind of on this, from the same wing of the Democratic Party as Connor Lamb in, here, here in Virginia, uh, Spanberger and Spanberger, right? Picked over and uh, Luria down in Virginia Beach. I mean, uh, let's see what happens, though. I mean, I, those people count too. I, I think the media does love AOC for obvious reasons, but you know, Lamb could run for the Senate. In Pennsylvania in 2002, can he win a primary? Can he beat the left in the Democratic primary? Could he win a general election? Suddenly, if it's Senator Connor Lamb, well, that's a different thing, and that's good for the Democratic Party. In my but opinion. the squad maybe is a, but up, the squad is able to claim a victory. The Democratic Party, you know, aren't the uh, the squad was able to claim a victory though, right? Because they they expanded their footprint in the House. They went from having four or five to as many as ten now, and they're able to claim a victory while people like Abigail Spanberger um, are saying, no, we didn't win because this seat that I carried barely, I couldn't have, I almost lost, and and I shouldn't, and Abigail Spanberger shouldn't have come as close to, to losing as she did, um, arguably. So, I guess my point is, if you're looking for a win, you can find it. We can we can convince ourselves at this point of whatever we need to be convinced of. Trump supporters, Sidney Powell has convinced herself of massive fraud by the late Hugo Chavez in um <laughs> in American elections, and she believes it, and she's been able to convince people of it. And and I think that there are, I don't certainly don't think there are people right now that I can think of on the left who are quite as. Uh, irrational, but there certainly are people on the left who are also convincing themselves of their, I hate the term, I hate the term my truth, but of their truth um, within their little bubble. And, and you know, on Twitter, you can just follow the people who agree with you. Uh, you know, my uncle, he thinks everyone in the state of North Carolina agrees with him on his support of Donald Trump and QAnon, but that's because he's blocked everybody who disagrees with him on Facebook, right? Right. But I do think this is where presidents make a difference. I mean, and elections make a difference and there's a kind of dose of reality at some point and either, you know, uh, policies work or they don't work. I mean, one thing that made the Trump thing complicated is the economy was good for the first three years, obviously, and pretty good and, until the uh, until the virus. And so it was a little, people like me were very upset by what the damage we thought he was doing to the rule of law and to our institutions. But it was a little hard for people to see it, I, I think it's fair to say, in their daily lives. I think with Biden, we'll see, you know, maybe he'll be also a, a mixed, the results will be mixed, and people just believe what they want to believe, as you're saying. I mean, you, you said that well, but sometimes you can't just believe what you want to believe. Because at the end of the day, you know, people are healthy or they're not healthy, and, 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 and people have jobs or they don't have jobs. 
And I think reality does still matter at some point. I don't think everyone just invents their truth, ultimately, hopefully. And it's important to have both parties be in touch with reality, mostly. I think that was the case in the old days. They differed in their interpretation of things, but there was not, you know, at the end of the day, there was a certain agreement about some basic facts. I think we are need you, to get back to that or we're in deep trouble. Are you looking forward to being able to disagree with President Biden on things? Yes, but I really am looking forward more to, I hope, him succeeding over the first... I didn't mean that in a bad way, I, but I, I, sa- no, I said I, it I'm in not a, saying you yeah. did. I, I'm not implying that, you know, but I'm just saying I really actually think, honestly, that I'm not looking for excuses to criticize them. I did. I don't think he should appoint General Austin to be Secretary of Defense, because I do think the civilian control issue is pretty important, and it's not ideal to have two secretaries. Right, but that's a policy issue, right? And isn't that, isn't it somewhat, I mean, I ask that because Megan McCain is one of my closest friends, and and she is obviously very good friends with President-elect Biden has been through her family for a long time, right. and she has, has said in the past, I don't know what I'll do when he's president. And and then she has said, but you know what? It'll be nice to be able to disagree with him on policy and yeah, not yeah. have to be worried about the politics. And and I know you have, you've been pretty vocal on Twitter also about uh, General Austin, but that is a policy issue. It's yeah. not because you think that, I mean, correct me, please, don't let me put words in your mouth. It's not because you don't think General Austin is not qualified to yeah. run the military in any way. It's that you have a tell, explain your your opposition to him. Well, or, as, or that he's not an honorable man who served our country, and that Biden right. doesn't have good intentions. It's just that there's a reason Congress has stipulated that there should be a civilian Secretary of Defense, not someone just out of the military, and it has to do with the fact the military is a very powerful institution. You really want to keep it segregated from politics as much as possible. You don't want the situation. You do have in other countries where. Military people near the end of their career start to become very political because they want to become Secretary of Defense or maybe President or something like that in, in different countries, Prime Minister. And you want to really keep those barriers up to some degree. And in terms of actual strategy, having a civilian voice and a military voice working together and a civilian voice ultimately making the, you know, the decisions of being superior is very important, obviously, in our system. So but anyway, I don't think it's a... You think, he's a be, you think he'll be confirmed anyway? Or do you think right. he won't get the waiver? You know, I don't know. I've been surprised how many people have been, are like, geez, I don't, we really want to do that again. It's sort of not the way we've done it traditionally here. And, and so I, I don't know, honestly, I really don't know. But you're right. That's the kind of debate and disagreement that is totally manageable, as it were, and is within the system. And, and incidentally, if General Austin it doesn't get the waiver, Biden will appoint someone else who's perfectly reasonable, I think, to be Secretary of Defense. But that will be that will be healthy to have that kind of discussion. And one of the big questions, and I mean, this is in a way what we've been talking about indirectly, is how much, if we have those kinds of discussions for the next three, six, nine months, does it change the not just the temperature, but really almost the the quality of our public life? Could we escape the kind of craziness, or is the craziness so built in that Biden will try to do this, but everyone will it'll just get drowned out by? is people having their own truths and people inventing their own conspiracies and people hating different groups and people thinking that the, the other part of the country is coming to get them and so forth. That That's what worries me, that, that the craziness is not limited to Donald Trump's Twitter feed. And there's an awful lot of uh, anim- hatred and or at least animosity and anxiety and uh, willingness to ascribe the worst motives to other Americans. There's a lot more of that out there than I think there was for most, has been for most of my adult life. Well, there is, uh, I've heard people describe a president, a President Biden as a palate cleanser. I personally hope that he is 
incredibly boring. <laughs> you know, yeah, right, I, right. I I supported him actually in 2008 when he ran um, uh, in the primary and totally. Is that right? I did. First, like, first person I, I ever donated. Any, he, he's rewarding all of his old supporters. So aren't you going <laughs> to? I didn't support him that much. Yeah, <laughs> the first know, person I ever donated to, the first political candidate I ever do, gave any money to, um, back in 08. I loved him then. For the arts or something like right. that. Right. I mean, I know. should. Now, this isn't the Trump administration where just anybody can get a job. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's going to get. He's going to get real people. Um, speaking of anybody, uh, we asked people um, all week or um, to send in questions for Bill Crystal. You can send your questions into us on Twitter or Instagram at Politicon, or you can email them podcasts at Politicon.com. Um, and these are questions, Bill, that folks sent in specifically for you. Uh, we do a little quick fire round with okay, some listener I'll, questions. I'll be quick. Um, Jesse from Sacramento asks, should Republicans change their response to COVID after Trump? I think so. And I think if Biden does the right thing, they should support him. And if he, they think he should be doing a few things extra or differently, they should say so. But they shouldn't be in this insane culture war of like, you know, wearing a mask is, means you're not a, a real man or something like that. Grace from Alexandria up in Virginia, not far from you. Um, if you could say something positive about the Trump administration, what would it be? Well, I think some of their appointments, some of the judicial appointments were good. I think the focus on China as a big geopolitical problem was was sensible not all the you know all the subordinate policies weren't so i think there were areas where trump was kind of going in the right direction and some of the people who worked for him were trying to go in the right direction in policy i just i think what overwhelmed it for me though was the demagoguery the divisiveness uh, the real damage to our kind of civic culture okay nikki from portland um nikki sorry about this i don't know if you're portland maine or portland oregon or there's probably another Portland somewhere else too, but um, Nikki asks, I'm pro-Biden and anti-Kamala. Do the Republicans have a message to cater to me in 2020? I think, uh, you know, look, they're a team now and let's see how Kamala Harris does. And she's never been in this at this level before. I, I respect her. I, she wouldn't have quite been my first choice for vice president, but I'd say let's give everyone a chance. I guess that's the one thing I would say. It's a very tricky people. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are inheriting a recession, a pandemic, a complicated world out there for a certain amount of repair that has to be done after Trump, a very divisive and hyperpolarized politics. So I'm, I'm willing to give people kind of a, the benefit of the doubt to start with. Helen from Racine, Wisconsin, asks, will attacking Democrats as socialists be as effective as it used to be? You know, I would not have thought so. I just look at Biden or Kamala Harris, for that matter, and I think, I mean, they're not socialists. Um, they're decent democratic socialists, incidentally, but they're not them, you know. And incidentally, Biden literally defeated the one, uh, you know, explicit socialist in the Senate um, and defeated Elizabeth Warren, who, you know, was sort of the, uh, carrying the torch for a certain kind of uh, uh, left-wing part of the Democratic Party. Biden beat them, and it didn't save him from being attacked as a socialist or a ton of other Democratic candidates. I'm a little uh, surprised, honestly, or sort of spooked by how effective that attack has been. Uh, but uh, it's something, if I were a Democratic strategist, I would say this in terms of the last election, and I think Spanberger said this, uh, Michael Spanberger said this, you know, both the socialist attack and the defunding the police attack, I think they're both pretty unfair, but they really resonated. So right. look, politics is about what people think, not just about, you know, real reality. And if that's what people think, and if you're a political <laughs> I wish, party, you've got to address 
I wish more people in my party would realize that. It's it's not about reality. It's about people's perceived reality. Well, it's reality. about both. But I mean, if, <laughs> right. if, if, you, you've got to ask yourself, well, what, have I, what has my party done over the last year, maybe the last 10, 20 years, to let people get that impression and probably go out of your way to fix it, just like in any other situation, right? If people have a certain uh, negative impression, you sort of have to begin by trying to that shouldn't be the only thing you do. You, you advance your positive agenda, but you do need to take, they, they sort of assumed that was, those were ridiculous uh, accusations that they didn't even have to deal with. And probably in retrospect, they should have uh, dealt with them more. Well, I mean, and also Joe Biden won. Um, yeah. He wasn't tagged with, he, they, they tried to tag him with the socialist label. Right. Um, it didn't work because, you know, as you mentioned, he's been around long enough that we sort of knew him. But it's a little harder to make the argument that it didn't work down the line in right. places like North Carolina, where Cal Cunningham lost to Tom Tillis, who was not popular as a senator in this state. And people like Susan Collins, who people expected to lose, she was able to win um, right. against a, a relatively popular Democrat there. So there were other people who were attacked, um, who who got tagged as socialists, right. um, and it, it possibly worked. Um, Tomas from Miami asked a question that I had to have explained to me. He asked, is there room on Elba for all the Trumps? Yeah, yeah that's okay, good. So yeah. you knew you yeah. knew what that meant. I didn't know what it meant. Yeah, vaguely, Napoleon and all that, yeah. <laughs> uh, that was, yeah but, but as you said earlier, I think... Uh, Probably we should hope that Trump enjoys playing golf at Mar-a-Lago um, and and fades away rather than have what do you think he's going to do of our politics? Hmm? What do you what do you think? What what is your prediction? Because I've asked everybody in the last few weeks what their prediction for Trump's next act was. I don't had I don't think anybody has actually believed he would go through with running for president. Do you think he's going to announce that he will? Do you th- what do you think he he hopes to do? Oh, I think he very much likes having the power to make and break everyone. And to do that, you sort of have to at least say you're considering running for president and you want to be the at least a kingmaker in the party, if not the right. king of the party. I don't rule out him running. He's looking at Biden and thinking, well, I'll be that age in four years. And I'm, he thinks, maybe as healthy as Biden. He survived uh, COVID and everything. So I don't rule out him running again. Uh, well, I hope I, I hope you're wrong. I kind of think he will. I don't, there's something about him that makes me think he's not going to want to roll the dice on possibly losing again. He won't mm-hmm. admit that he's lost, but he knows he's lost. So mm-hmm. he, I don't think he wants. I don't think he's going to put himself in a position to lose again. But okay, I do so think he's going. I do that's think that's you know you know. While you were hanging out, with I him do think I do think he'll take it all the way to the last minute, and whoever has kissed his butt. Has he called you the in the most. last week or two? <laughs> no, he is not. No, he is not. You know, I did call him. He was one of the first people I called when I announced my campaign for Congress. I called our Jim Hunt, the former governor of North right. Carolina, first, and then I called Donald Trump second. And I'm sort of embarrassed by it, but I did. He was the second person I called. Did he send a check or he sent a sheep skate? He probably didn't. No, well, he, he didn't send a check. He told me that he would, he told me that he would uh, let me do a fundraiser at Trump in Charlotte, but that never happened. Um, yeah. But I, in large part, I called him because I knew he was in that point in 2014 where he was going on Fox and Friends every Monday morning. And I thought, God, I've got to tell him first, because if he gets asked about it on Fox and Friends, I want him to... And did he ever weigh in on on your race one way or the other? um, Well, no, he didn't weigh in on it publicly. Anything we can blackmail with and destroy? No, but I... no, but I will tell a I will tell a story that I probably told before, and 
they can edit it out if I've told it before. But I am proud of the fact that I do have framed. Um, I did an I did an interview with New York Magazine, um, and in that interview, I was asked about my experience with Donald Trump, and I, you know, said he was sort of like the uncle who you liked, but you didn't talk politics with, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And the the interviewer did not the editor that didn't make it into the article um, in New York Magazine, but. After the article was printed, I got a copy of it, of that article, mailed to me with Donald Trump scrawling across it saying, not one mention of how well you did on Apprentice, that's loyalty. And then his scribble, and he was very upset that I had not mentioned him at all in the article. And he sent another copy of it with the same thing to the writer. And then the editor of the New York Times actually did an art, did a column on it and printed a copy of that where he said, you know, actually the, the interviewer did uh, ask about Donald Trump and Clay was gracious, but mm-hmm. it got edited out. And it did, and so I actually have hate mail from a president of the United States, which I have That's framed good. now. I'm very proud of <laughs> who can, I would say who can say they have hate mail from the president, but the truth is a lot of people have a lot of administration. Do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not unique in that, but it's still good. It's an honorable club. I, you never were called human scum quite though. So you're, you know, I'm working on it. <laughs> I'm trying. I'll get there eventually. Bill Crystal, how the heck are we going to get along? How are we going to get along? Mm-hmm. Well, you're a good example of this, and I mean, I hope this discussion has been a good. I mean, you know, the good. So let me say the good news. I think if you want to be optimistic, I mean, I get worried when I see what's going on. I mean, this is a you know a great country in which people have do get along, and for all the talk about how they scream at each other at Thanksgiving dinners and Red America and Blue America, and they're living in different universes, that's not really my personal experience, at least. I mean, obviously. Not obviously, but where I live in Northern Virginia, it's 60-40 anti-Trump, 70-30, but it's not, you know, 90-10. I got plenty of neighbors who voted for Trump, and uh, we've had cordial discussions and disagreements or agreed just not to talk about it for a while. And I've got to think an awful lot of America doesn't like a situation where everything is politicized. Everything is a symbolic cultural war. That's, the, for me, the thing that has to get, you know, almost get taken care of first. If you can get people beyond that, yeah, then people can accept that there other people have different views. They live different lives. They may not kind of approve of it always. They don't like it that much. They don't want it for themselves. Uh, there's some tensions occasionally if if these kind of ways of life come into conflict. But we've been pretty good as a country in managing that most of the time. And I, I guess I hope that you know we we get back to that. You know, my um, my nephew, my my son, and my nephew, all of them, they all play these Roblox video games. But one of my uh, nephews was playing on one of these video games a few weeks ago and he killed some character some person who was playing elsewhere and i he was joking about how he had killed and i you know it's a video game it doesn't really kind of what you're supposed to do but i sort of explained to him i said but you don't really realize that somewhere in indiana somewhere there's a little kid who's crying because their character got killed Hmm. and i and I, we had a little conversation about that. He didn't do anything wrong, obviously. But it made me think about, this is a kid who has a great deal of empathy for people around him. But when he gets on the computer, you know, he doesn't have that empathy because he doesn't, you can't connect. You can't see when you speak to someone on Twitter or on Facebook right, or right. post online. You can't see the heartbreak in their face when you say something mean. And I feel like a lot of times we've gone 
and 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 it's gotten worse in this pandemic because yeah, we can only talk to people. The pandemic has made right. it worse. I think that's we true. can we can't go around people in person. Um, right. And when we do, there's a mask on their face, <laughs> you know, so you can't yeah. see them the sad look on their face. And so, but I do think that we have lost the ability to feel that empathy because we don't have interactions. And you're right. When I talk to my the the guy who lives across the street from me, who I know for a fact is a big Trump supporter nicest person on the planet comes over offers me the leaf blower he's just we don't talk about politics and if we did talk about politics we'd figure out a way to have a conversation where he could agree he could feel one way and i could feel another way and we still respect each other that face-to-face around the dinner table kind of interaction is what i think we're missing and uh, i feel like we just got to get off the internet a little bit more (laughs) and and go hopefully within the next few months all get vaccinated go back face to face and really appreciate our fellow human beings and and want to get along a little bit more so i i hope so so, from your lips to god's ears right well i i wish you nothing but the best i know if you don't have a home at the moment in the republican party that you're used to I certainly am not one of those people who expect someone to agree with me on everything. So please, by all means, come on over to the Democrat side anytime you'd like to. We don't have to agree on everything. Okay. And you're welcome and anyway. anyway. I'll let you know. I'll, you'll be the first to call, just like you called Donald Trump. I'll tell you when I, when I make that. Oh, please. That out. But I really Excellent. Okay, I'm going to hold you to it. Stay well. Likewise. Bill Crystal, thank you so much. Thanks, Clay. Thank you again for listening. We've got just a few more weeks left in 2020. Thank God it's almost over. Uh, But we will be back here next week, and we hope you will too. If you enjoyed the show, please like us and rate us highly. If you didn't enjoy the show, just like us anyway. You don't have to download next week, but you still need to like and rate us highly. Um, (laughs) But subscribe, like, share, save, all that stuff. Uh, And we'll be back next week with another episode of How the Heck Are We Gonna Get Along?